speeding. Normally, rare book school is a three-ring circus, but sometimes it's more. Excuse me for being a bit late. Marianne O'Brien Malkin has been connected with Rare Book School from the beginning, that is to say, since 1983, when Rare Book School began in New York City. She formally attended Rare Book School classes in that year and for several years thereafter. Then and since then, she has been one of our principal ambassadors, always in residence at Rare Book School, at least for some time during the several weeks during which we are open for business each year. Her presence enriches the school and also the front row. Uh, many of the older persons here will remember A.B. Bookman's Weekly, a magazine carrying bookseller ads for use in rare books wanted and for sale with front matter of interest to the overlapping worlds of used and rare book selling, research librarianship, and book collecting. Marianne Malkin's late husband, Saul M. Malkin, founded A.B. Bookman's Weekly edited it for a generation. The Malkin sold AB in the early 70s, and it continued in business under the direction of Jake Chernofsky until two years ago when it ceased operation, suspended by the internet. AB Bookman's Weekly made its debut as the Antiquarian Bookman. It was published by the R.R. Bowker Company as a spin-off of the so-called back half of Publishers Weekly. It included dealers' lists of books wanted and a few single copies of books for sale. The front matter of Antiquarian Bookman consisted of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians, and it included a column written by Jacob Blank, providing news, musings, and gossip about the trade. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual lecture in honor of Saul Malkin's contribution to the antiquarian book trade. Michael Winship gave the first Saul M. Malkin lecture in bibliography under Book Arts Press auspices at the Columbia University School of Library Service in December 1985. In time for Saul Malkin to congratulate Michael on his performance, though Malkin was himself too ill to attend. Indeed, Saul Malkin died in 1986, a few months after Winship had delivered the lecture. Michael Winship will be in residence back at his usual stand at Rare Book School next week. Malkin lectures over the years have included William P. Barlow, Jr. in the room tonight and teaching in Rare Book School this week, Robert Darnton, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldsmith, Catherine Kais Lieb, Paul Needham, William Reese, Kenneth Rendell, Bernard Rosenthal, Anthony Rhoda, Justin Schiller, Roger Stoddard, Thomas Tansel, and Marjorie Wynn. It's a great pleasure to introduce the 2001 Saul M. and Mary Ann O'Brien Malkin lecturer in bibliography, Nicholas Barker. Nicholas Barker is the acronym of a, is a, of a busy firm of bibliographers based in London with branches in Cambridge, Italy, Philadelphia, and elsewhere. The firm has been responsible for more than a dozen books on bibliographical subjects, among them the recent editions of John Carter's classic vocabulary, ABC for Book Collectors. For the past 35 years, Nicholas Barker has collectively edited a celebrated periodical, The Book Collector. The firm has very kindly tonight sent one of its senior representatives to give the lecture on the origins of the second-hand book trade in England, the market for antiquarian books between the Middle Ages and 1726. Nicholas Barker. I've learnt by long experience that with Terry, the best thing to do is to get your word in first and quick. So let me first say before he does that this is a very boring lecture indeed <laughs> and that if anybody would like to slip out uh, at any convenient point, please don't mind me. <laughs> the second thing I wanted to say is that I owe Sol Malkin an enormous 
debt of gratitude which continues long after his death to resound in my mind. When I took over the book collector by force majeure, and by force majeure I mean a group consisting of Tim Munby, John Carter and Percy Muir with their hands stuck into their Macintosh pockets and their, hand, head, their hats pulled down well over their faces, who stuck me up against the wall of the north wall of St. Luke's, Chelsea, and uh, said in terms which it was hard to resist that I was to be the next editor of the book collector. I had no very clear idea of what this involved. Sol wrote me an immediate letter of friendly advice, which I cherish. It was all sound, practical advice written by one person who had edited single-handed a journal for a good long time, all but 20 years. And we continued to remain friends and occasional correspondents. Sol was one of the first people I, ever, I went to visit when I came to New York for the first time in 1970. And the book collector is the poorer for that input of good advice that he provided over the years. In fact, I don't get any input from anybody about the book collector these days. The only comfort I get is that, on the whole, the number of those who cancel their subscriptions is outweighed by those who start new ones. <laughs> Having said that, I now turn to my topic, the origins of the second-hand book trade. Most librarians spend, and always have spent, a lot of time wondering how to get hold of books, sometimes specific books, and others books in general. This puzzles booksellers, who observe an opposite phenomenon. That is, that they have a great many books, all attractive or useful in one way or another, that stay on the shelves, unsought and unsold. I do not propose to dwell on this well-known enigma, which persists through thick and thin, unaltered by famine or plenty, unmitigated by the useful lists of what you ought to have, provided by Pope Nicholas V, Conrad Gesner, Brunet, Lowndes, books in print on printing in the mind of man. My immediate point is that it underlies another constant fact, that all the books to be had new at any period of the world's history are insufficient for its needs. People want old books as well, partly for the straightforward reason that they are not to be had new, partly because they are harder to get and therefore more, if perversely, desirable. The pleasures of the chase should never be underestimated. All this underlies the circumstances in which the first identifiable second-hand bookseller in England enters history. When Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, died on the 21st of February, 1447, his nephew, Henry VI, made over his property at Baynard's Castle to his new foundation of King's College, Cambridge. The Duke's well-known learning and taste for books may have suggested the terms of the petition addressed to the King a month later by the provosts of King's and Eton College. They wanted, they wrote, books for divine service and for their libraries and their studies, vestments and other ornaments, which things may not be had without great diligent labor, belong process and right busy inquisition. Please it to your noble grace to give in your special commandment and charge to Maester Richard Chester, one of your chaplains, that he take to him such men as shall be seen to him expedient and profitable, and in especial John, John Pye, your stationer of London, and other such has been cunning and have understanding in such matters, charging him and every one of them to be assistant and helping him with all I hear diligence, and I'll skip the rest. What success he had is not known, because almost nothing survives of the 15th century library of King's College. But John Pye is a substantial figure, warden of the stationer's company in 1441, executor of the will of Richard Brown, alias Corden, Archdeacon of Rochester, dated 8 October 1452, and, as we shall see, the purveyor of some still-surviving books, some new at the time he sold them, others old. But before embarking on the subject of the trade in old books, and, in particular, the relative price of new and old books, it's worth pausing to reflect on the word old. What, what did people mean by old? And how old is old? What value did they set on age in a book? Was it a plus or a minus on the scale of values, whether scholarly or monetary? 
These questions are not easy to answer because most early lists of books only identify them by describing their contents, adding a secundo folio reference to dis distinguish this copy from any other. If other epithets come in, they usually describe physical characteristics. A book may be pulka, pretty, catenatus, chained, its script in literis nitidissimis, beautiful characters, its binder in niger or rubius, its, its defects identified as decem et octo quaterni, 18, 18 choirs of such and such a work, which ought to have more. They do not identify or comment on age as a rule. The first indication from which we can estimate the age of books thus described comes in descriptions of handwriting. The classic summary of this type of evidence is the late and much lamented Emanuele Casamassima's Literary Gothici, a wonderful paper. And the need to make such a distinction emerges, as he pointed out, in Bologna about 1300 with the development of the then new Littera Bononiensis, the law hand, which soon was uh, soon denominated Littera Moderna, the new modern letter to distinguish it from the old letter. Older books, that is, of the 12th century or earlier, were distinguished as being in literis antiquis, lit old letters. The preference of these first Italian humanists for this kind of writing led to its extension to distinguish old and therefore superior texts nearer to a different, far older antiquity, antiquity itself with a capital A. At the same time, it was extended in a different direction to the new humanist writing that Im imitated the old. Two books in the 15th century catalogue of the library of Santa Giustina at Padua are described as in Littera Antiqua Horum Temporum, old letters of our time. With this went the further distinction that such writing, whether old or new, was good. What then was bad? Gothic was the answer, a word associated with the barbarian invaders who brought down ancient Rome, an association that gained force with the sack of modern Rome by Charles V's Landsknechts in, in 1527. But literary Gothici are not so easily defined. An earlier term, literary Langobardi, Lombard letters, was used at Monte Cassino in the 15th century for the, by then, difficult to read, Beneventan script, which had been used in southern Italy in the 11th and 12th century. And at Bobbio, again, in 1461, but for equally difficult, but far older scripts. It was this sort of writing, pre-Caroline minuscule of the 6th to 8th century, that Palatino illustrated in his writing manual in 1540 as Lettera Longobarda. And it was some such image that Poggio had in mind, writing to Leonello d'Este in 1434, about the legendary complete Livy in three great volumes, et oblonga conscripta literis longobardis et nonulis praeterea gothicis intermixtis, a very precise description, an oblong, long, narrow book, written in Lombard letters, and in, in particular mixed with certain Gothic letters. Obviously, he could see that there was some special difficult quality about it. And this was the visual image of an old book before the new humanists and textual scholars of the Renaissance, what Giovanni Lamola, La uh, uh, describing the complete text of Cicero's rhetorical works recently discovered at Lodi by Guarino in 1427, called Summae Quidem Venerationis at Antiquitatis Non Vulgaris Effigies, the, uh, uh, a model uh, worthy of the highest veneration and of no vulgar antiquity. Vetustas Codicum, age of, 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 of the manuscript was an ideal reiterated by Politian, the father of modern textual criticism, and he knew what it meant. Citing as evidence for a reading in Juvenal in a Codex Langobardus, Exoratis Literis, the, which was in fact the 11th century Benevento manuscript now in the Vatican. And his example was not lost on his chief 16th century disciple, Pierre Vettori, who described the Marcianus of Varro in similar terms. Respectful references to codices veteres abound in scholarly works and correspondence from now on. But it's one thing to be able to recognize an old book and another to value it in, in modern archaeological terms, let alone dollars and cents. To the humanist scholar, an old book was valuable as an old text. Its old script was an asset, not an asset, but a disadvantage. 
because hard to read. Too often a copy was made with errors and the original lost. The great Scaliger could, could recognize the characteristics of a 9th century manuscript of Orsonius as Longobardarum Characteribus Exoratum and leave the reading of Tostam or Tortam open because in Lombardic script there's no difference between an R and an S. That shows some knowledge of paleography. But reading, but collating a Catullus manuscript now in the British Museum dated 1469 and so hardly old by any standard in his time, he could call its readings V for Vetus because its scribe introduced archaic spellings and other textual improvements, which were no improvements at all. But Scaliger was nevertheless reading his 15th century manuscript with a 9th century image in his mind's eye. With all these uncertainties about con what constitutes an old book and the value set upon its age in time past, it may seem foolhardy to return to John Pye and to try and distinguish the beginnings of a trade in second-hand books in the Middle Ages in England. But one or two of Pye's customers have obligingly left evidence of his activities in the books they bought from him. And this is the best kind of evidence that we have. A good deal has been written about the early medieval book trade and something about the cost and price and value of books. Most of this is based on accounts, valuations in inventories, and figures based on cautiones, those securities for loans from the university chest. All these should be viewed with some reservation. The cost of book production, in terms of parchment prices and the wages of scribes, let alone valuations made for other purposes than trade, are very different from trade prices. Graham Pollard in The English Market for Printed Books in 1960 was suitably cautious about the origins of a wholesale trade before the growth of printing made it an established fact. Nevertheless, it's possible to discern a pattern emerging in the 15th century from which to distinguish between the price levels for old as opposed to new books. On the 21st of June, 1453, Richard of Scarborough, fellow of Merton, Merton College, Oxford, entered into a contract with Johannes Reinbold, a German scribe, who undertook to copy the last three books of Duns Scotus at two shillings and tuppence a choir. Richard's set of Duns Scotus on the sentences, the two versions of the first book, the second and third and fourth books, and a final volume containing the Quaestiones Quadlibitales and the commentary of Franciscus de Myronibus make a complete set of six volumes still at Merton, given to the college after Richard's death by Thomas Bloxham. Johannes Reinbold recorded the details of his work in each volume. The three volumes of the contract are dated 1453 to 6. They're handsome books, and the price may have been a little above the average. But the commission seems to have been a success, and Reinbold spent 1460 to 1465 writing out a similar set of Duns Scotus for no lesser figure than William Gray, Bishop of Ely, whose price is not recorded, though the books are still at Balliol College. Five books at Peterhouse, Cambridge, in which similar details are recorded, work out at one shilling and sevenpence a choir. They all resemble each other closely and are part of a donation of no, not less than 18 books given to the college by William Dingley, a fellow between 1392 and 1442. What is interesting from our point of view is that the price of the work is not recorded for the book, but the choir. This was natural enough when a bound book habitually contained more than one work, not necessarily by the same author or on the same subject. A bound book stood in the same relation to the chest in which it was kept as a bookshelf now does to a bookcase and it could be taken to pieces and reassembled just as books are on a shelf. This is a further reason for caution in considering price records in books. The present contents of the books as bound today may not be the same as when the note was made. With this in mind, let us now look at the surviving relics of John Pye's trade in books. There are four books that bear, or bore, because one of them has lost its crucial leaf, his name. Two are in the, among the royal manuscripts in the British Library, and two at Oxford, a Bodley and a Lord manuscript. 
Royal 5C3 is a vast composite volume of 27 tracts, once 11 separate works, by Giles de Columna, Aristotle, Saints Augustine, and Bonaventura, and others, a large folio of 381 folios. A flyleaf, now missing but recorded in the 1734 catalogue, was inscribed Liberty Aber Hall, Emptus R.J. Pry, pros, 27 shillings and sixpence. Royal 8D10 contains the sermons of William of O'Verne, a folio again, 206 folios, with a note, Isti Liver Constat Edward Rich, Amy London R. Pye, Stack, Stationarius, Pro, 20, 20 shillings. Bodley 110 is the apocryphal epistle of Nicodemus and Pilate's letter to the Emperor Claudius. Folio, 188 folios. Monked, marked Hunk Librum Emmet W. Cleave, a, a known figure who died in 1470. DJ Pye, Stationario Lund, for 20 shillings. All these were old books when bought, but the last, the Lord Manuscript, is the Sermons of John Felton, Vicar of St. Mary Magdalene, Oxford, brand new, quarto, 101 folios, inscribed, Isti Liber Emptus Fuit, De Johannes Pi, pro, 26 shillings. No date is given, but the inscription is clearly contemporary with the text. John Felton, a glorious preacher and of good life and learning, died before June 1434. His sermons were popular, and there are many manuscripts in Oxford collections and elsewhere. Now, omitting the first book, whose original extent cannot be determined, these prices work out at about a shilling a choir for books bought, bought not new and presumably second-hand, while the new book is considerably more expensive, the price per choir rather more than two shilling, the two shillings and tuppence paid by Richard of Scarborough. In other words, it's costing about two and a half times what the old books are costing. This pattern can be confirmed by the book buying of Thomas Witch at about the same time. Thomas Witch became a fellow of Oriel College, Oxford in 1435 and was successively chaplain, dean, and senior treasurer of the college. He left it in 1461 to become chaplain of the Chantry at Trent, which was in the gift of Oriel, and in Dorset, and finally moved north as canon of Lichfield and prebendary of Carventry, and he died before September 1475. He was the admirable sort of book buyer who records the full details of his purchases in most of his books. Eight are known to survive, three at Magdalen College, Oxford, and one each at Lincoln College, the British Library, the Bodleian, and rather surprisingly, Oriel itself. Of these, five were bought from John Moore, the Oxford stationer. The earliest, the Lincoln book, was bought in 1440. It's a large folio, 184 folios, and cost 16 shillings on the 1st of August, 1440. British Library Additional 4356 is a biblical concordance, also 14th century, small quarto, 148 folios, and cost 7 shillings on the 26th of January, 1442. The Oriel book is a large folio of Richard Fitzrafe and Robert Holcott's Quaestiones, written by Nicholas Hawkes in 1389, another old book, 292 folios for which, which paid more, 42 shillings in April 1454. On 12 April 1455, he bought a book against heresy, which is now Magdalene IV, the works of Guy, Bishop of Elver, and Alvarus, Bishop of Silves, Quarto, 282 folios, 15th century beginning, again from Moore for 13 shillings and fourpence. In Quaternis, non illuminatis nec legatis, in its original choirs without illumination or binding. You couldn't illuminate a book once it had been bound. On the 31st of December following, he bought the Remedium Conversorum of Peter Archdeacon of London and St. Anselm on the Beatitudes. Lord Mist VI, quarto, 187 folios, a 13th century book, De Domino Ricardo de Orlo Bostaris, but no price is given. The Nicholas de Lara on the Evangelists, now at Trinity, Folio, 177 folios, 15th century, which bought, again, price not given, from Dominus Ricardo Bond, chaplain of the City of London, on 1 September 1457. And finally, on 21 October 1457, he bought a large compendium on canon law, the Summer Samarum, more than 134, large folio, 302 folios, 14th century, again from John Moore, for 33 shillings and fourpence, plus 12 pence, pro fiodo suo, i.e., he bought it on commission, and he had to pay 12 pence on commission for a book sold to, in the university through its licensed stationer. <sighs> None of these books was bought new, 
and they all work out at about a shilling a choir, allowing for quartos half the rate for folios. Viewed then from the point of view of a book buyer as well as a bookseller, prices for second-hand books seem to have been constant over the same period of 20 years, which, unless the surviving sample of his books is atypical, may have been obliged or preferred to buy his books second-hand. Buying second-hand books, of course, reduces selection to serendipity, but at half the rate of new books or less, and given the relatively small number of available, that are available new or second-hand, that may have been a tolerable liability. Contrarywise, Richard of Scarborough's commission to Johannes Reinbold may be seen as an exceptional case, at least in terms of academic book buying, and the contract for making his special set of Dunscotus something outside the normal run of the book trade. With this framework, however hypothetical in mind, let us move on another century and consider another well-documented library, that of Robert Burton, author of The Anatomy of Melancholy, 1576 to 1640, recently studied in admirably thorough detail by Nicholas Kiesling. We are still in the lifetime of Scaliger, but a new sensibility followed reform, and in particular the dissolution of the monasteries. John Leland was not the only one to bewail that time of lamentable spoil of the libraries of England when books that found no worse fate were carried over the sea in Flanders to be sold, for in those uncircumspect and careless days there was no quicker merchandise than library books. This strong market deserves to be set against the more widely known talk of wholesale destruction. Cromwell's visitors might boast that they had set duns in Boccardo and have utterly banished him Oxford forever with all his blind glosses. But Richard of Scarborough's set is still at Merton to show that duns held his value. An antiquarian interest in old books, in fact, predated the Reformation. About 1530, John Foch, the last abbot of St. Augustine's Sturry, was talking to Nicholas Wooden, the future dean of Canterbury, who had just returned with another monk, from a visit to Louise Vives in Louvain. Their conversation turned on the antiquities of Britain, and John Twine, who recorded the conversation, mentioned Geoffrey of Monmouth and the regrettable loss of his Vetustissimus Liber, the source of all ancient British history, and in fact, the origin of the legend of Arthur and all that. Very careless of him, they said. Post-Reformation antiquaries were inspired by Archbishop Parker to preserve the literary witnesses of the past, and the prices paid for books by one of them, Thomas Dacham, in the 1560s show that bargains were not to be had. Robert Burton is hardly to be numbered in this class. Wide and Catholic though his literary tastes were, he did not have the archaeological interests of his near contemporary Sir Robert Cotton. The books that he bought were mostly modern. 74% of them have imprint dates within his lifetime. But he owned a great number of them, at least 1,740. Uh, and the evidential value of his library comes by its size and variety. If at the end of his life he had enough means to buy books new, 165 of them in the last decade of his life, earlier he was dependent on picking up books cheap, cheaper second-hand. On 11 August 1605, he wrote to his brother William, the antiquary and historian of their native Leicestershire, I pray that if you chance to walk up into London amongst the brokers, you would see if you can meet with Seneca the philosopher's works at second hand and send me the lowest price you can find. Or if you cannot meet with them, say, tell me how they may be sold new there in one volume octavo. Obviously, uh, 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 if you have to buy a new book, a paperback at a cheap price is better than buying in boards. Over 300 of his surviving books have got booksellers' marks in, and almost 250 of them have a note of the prices he paid. Only about 20 of these were demonstrably bought new, though at least another 30 may have been. As with Thomas Witch's books a century or half earlier, a remarkably consistent picture of the relative price of new and second-hand books emerges. The printed sheet has now taken the place of the choir as the unit of price. Burton bought new books at the rate of a penny a sheet, or three sheets for tuppence. Second-hand books were much cheaper, running at three or four sheets to the penny. The few exceptions to this are significant. 
Large, serious folios were apt to be above average, particularly books on medicine and astrology. A new copy of, of Charles Stephanus's Dictionarium of 1595 was the most expensive at twopence a sheet. A relatively new copy of Osorius de Regis Institutione 1588, on the other hand, had been heavily used by two previous owners, and its 37 and three-quarter sheets only cost Bert Burton fourpence in 1601. These instances could be multiplied, but more revealing are the details of the two red-letter days that Burton noted in some detail. On the 12th of August, 1602, he bought a volume containing six early 16th-century tracts for 12 pence in Aldersgate Street, London, noting that it came from the books of Robert Beale, 1541 to 161, the recently deceased clerk of the council. And on 24 October, 1609, he bought 46 books in 42 volumes from John Crossley, stationer in High Street, Oxford, ranging from sermons and learned history to topical wonders and Nash's Have With You to Saffron Walden, 1595, for an itemized total of 10 shillings and 11 pence, reduced on settlement to 10 shillings. Burton died on the eve of the Civil War, tumultuous years that affected the course of English bibliophily, no less than the Reformation. Evelyn and Pepys, Richard Smith and the Duke of Lauderdale acquired a new taste in books that embraced both fine binding and a new sense of the physical properties of antiquity. This comes to maturity in the Harleian Library. The 50 years of the library under Robert and Edward Harley, first and second earls of Oxford, marks a turning point in the history of books in Britain. It is significant that now, at last, after a delay that seems inexplicable to us, today, the text of the Greek New Testament was given the same attention in terms of old manuscripts that classical texts had received earlier. John Mill's great edition, based on 32 printed editions and 87 manuscripts, came out in 1707. George Hicks and his followers laid the foundations of modern historical scholarship. So too, the Harleian Library stands at the threshold of a new world. The trinity of the two Harleys and their remarkable librarian, Humphrey Wanley, inaugurates our view of the relationship that has existed ever since between the librarian or collector of old books and the trade. It can all be read in Cyril and Ruth Wright's edition of the Diary of Humphrey Wanley, 1715-26. to I've more than once praised this wonderful book, and I do so now again. It's still in print with a bibliographical society, and you can buy it for a mere song. It is the best bedside book for bibliophiles ever compiled, and you will learn more about the ways of books, their buyers and sellers, from it than any other, for all that it was written about times more than 250 years ago. I can only dip into this treasure now. Here is Mr. Jonah Bowyer, the bookseller, will secure such books as my lord hath marked in his printed catalogue at the approaching auction, or at least such of them as may be had at reasonable prices. Here, too, is Mr. Paul Vaillant, come, and gave me uh, B. Montfaucon's proposals touching his new edition of St. Chrysostom's work, which the two first volumes are already come over and valued at 50 shillings a volume on large paper. Mr. Montague, the bookseller, sent a manuscript primer, formerly a folio, but now, by cutting into the illuminations, reduced to a quarto and bound in two volumes. The lowest price was said to be eight guineas, I, having turned over both the volumes, answered that the price, the price was by much too high, and besides that my lord had many copies of the same vastly superior to it. Librarians knew how to talk to booksellers in those days. <laughs> Mr. Osborne, the bookseller who was, alas, eventually to buy and disperse the Harleian library. Mr. Osborne sent a catalogue of the books he intends to sell on the 20th instant under the borrowed name of Richard Roger Smith, Esquire, salting a sale. An old trick. This Osborne is as knavish as he is ignorant, and I believe most of the books belong to his brethren of the gang. The full story of the purchase of the Harley and Golden Gospels from the library of the Marquis de Menard announced for sale at The Hague on 10 June 1720, but bought privately before it, has an astonishingly modern ring. It begins with Harley approaching Paul Vaillant, the bookseller, the French bookseller who commanded a great 
second-hand market in London. I agreed with Mr. Vaillant of the terms and directed him to send into Holland for a specimen of the character of the Latin Gospels, written all in golden letters, which is to be sold next June in the auction of Menaz's books. 14 May 1720. Yesterday, Mr. Vaillant brought me a specimen of the character that, that, uh, of that Latin manuscript of the Gospels to be sold at the approaching auction. The, letter, the, the characters are all uncials, gilded over with gold, and appear to be formed in a very elegant manner. In my opinion, this most ancient and valuable book should be purchased at any rate. 17 May. My Lord, seeing a specimen of the character of the Latin manuscript of the Gospels, said to be written all over with letters of gold, gave order for its being bought at Menaz's approaching auction at The Hague and sent over hither as soon as may be. Commission to be given to Mr. Vaillant. 4 June. I wrote to Mr. Vaillant to know the price of the golden manuscript and to desire it may come to my Lord as soon as possible, and I had an answer from him to satisfaction. Unusual. 5 June. Mr. Vaillant sent my lord a letter informing him that the ancient manuscript of the Latin Gospels, all written with capital letters of gold, is actually bought in Holland for his lordship. 6 June. Mr. Vaillant waited on my lord to apprise him of the short time within which the Godex Aureus may be expected, and my lord paid him the price of it. 21 June. The news came that the ship which brings the Godex Aureus is arrived off the coast of England. 27 June. This day, the Codex Aureus Latinus, in capital letters, was cleared out of the king's warehouse and delivered into my custody. 28 June. This day, by my lord's order, I drew up a short account of the said Codex Aureus and sent it by the post to his lordship. 29 June. This day, I brought the Codex Aureus with me and placed it in the library. 20 August. Mr. Vaillant was sent by my lord to see how the Codex Aureus itself agrees with the specimen taken from it in Holland before it was bought and upon sight he agreed it was injudiciously done my lord having condescended to lend Dr. Bindley the Codex Aureus of the Gospels and that another ancient exemplar I carried the manuscripts to Dr. Bentley and took his note for them 27 June 1721 Dr. Bentley came to thank my lord for his favour in lending him the Codex Aureus Mr. Elliot began to work about the Codex Aureus. That was uh, Harley's binder. In order to the new binding of it, the cover ha it had in the second binding of it, perhaps about 90 years ago, being worn out and the whole sewing gone to decay. It's an astonishingly modern account of the acquisition of a serious book at an auction. The book, I'm glad to say, is still clothed in Elliot's best Har Harleyan style. And Wanley's evaluation makes it clear that he, and no doubt my lord, saw the book not just as a text, but still more as an object of antiquity and beauty. The buying of it abroad, the difficulty of communication, the specimen of the character demanded as we would photographs, the alarms over freight and customs, all this is familiar to the librarian and bookseller today. Of all the booksellers that came to Wanley, the most regular was Nathaniel Noel, flourished 1681 to about 1753. The first of a long line of English booksellers, the Edwardses, the Paynes, and later Bernard Quaritch, who ransacked the continent for newly rich English collectors. Noel had a brilliant but erratic agent, George Sutty, who was abroad. He has received a letter he writes, this is, this is um, Wanley again, he hath received a letter from George Sutty dated from Chalon with a catalogue of books lately bought wherein I could find few or none to my lord's purpose. Mr. Sutty is going for Lyon and complains that divers enriched by the Mississippi stock hinder him in buying books, not the last time that English booksellers have complained about French speculators. A whole book could be written and one day I hope it will about Nathaniel Noel and his doings. Wanley was fascinated by him, and he, as he by Wanley, a fascination not unmixed with suspicion on both sides. Wanley jotted down his feelings. Noel tampers with the Earl of Sunderland, who he says will take care to advance him. Hereupon, Noel wants a commission of £500 per annum from my lord to amuse himself with, my, with all. Noel wonders that I can resist money and be contented with a small matter, and declares to me that he can never have enough underlined. Noel broods over his newcome things continually, looking into, turning over and counting and pumping me about them all day long in order to advance the prices. 
Noel even refused to trust me with his Greek roll, who would have sent it to my lord to look upon it, pretending that if I should send it, it would all crumble away. I suppose a papyrus roll. It is a speaking likeness, a sketch of the larger portrait in the diary and the Harley correspondence. Book prices are harder to follow. There's no longer a price structure based on extent, though Harley had a, sta- a scale with Noel. For ordinary books, uh, of, of, uh, a scale for ordinary books, 20 shillings for a folio, 6 shillings for a quarto, 3 shillings for an octavo, and 2 shillings for duodecimo and under. But there were exceptions. What is one to make of prices of an odd volume of Reimer's Federer and the beautifully written and illuminated Varro, which is now Harley 2702, the one at £10 and the other at 10 guineas, respectively. An odd volume, contemporary, fabulous medieval manuscript, both priced the same. It seems very odd. So the basis of antiquarian book prices, if ultimately dependent, as always, on the willingness of buyer and seller, were then much less governed by precedent as they are today. The coincidence of two factors, the arrival of unknown, possibly then unique, books from Italy, and the confrontation of the two leading collectors of the time, Sunderland and Harley, at the Fairbairn sale in December 1721, could completely upset standard prices. It is clear from Wanley's comments at the time that the booksellers thought the millennium had come. (laughs) The auction of Mr. Fairbairn's books being over, Mr. Bacon on Saturday night delivered to me my catalogue and also his own, wherein are the prices that the books went at. Hereupon, I take leave to observe the information of posterity that although the current prices of books are much advanced during these latter years, that the books in general went at low or rather at vile rates through a combination of the booksellers against the sale, i.e. it was ringed. Yet, some books went for unaccountably high prices, which bought by Mr. Vaillant, the bookseller, who had an unlimited commission from the Earl of Sunderland, being... Virgil Aeneid, manuscripts, written about 1450, Manu Ital in Membranis, £11.5. Virgil Opera, Impressa, printed book, per Antonio Zerotum, circa AD 1472, the Editio Princeps, as it happens. Folio, Liber Nitidissimus et Illuminatus, a pretty illuminated book, £46. Columella de Re Rustica, manuscript in in Vellum, also uh, Italy, £40. Vitruvius, 16 pounds. Nicetas' commentary on Gregory the Nazianzen's uh, hymns, a Greek manuscript on paper, good paper, a, mini, a, a folio and, and illuminated, 33 pounds. It was noted, this is still one, it, it was noted that when Mr. Vaillant had bought the printed Virgil above mentioned at 46 pounds, that he huzzahed out loud and threw up his hat for joy that he had bought it so cheap. The booksellers, upon this sale, intend to rise the price, raise the prices of philological books of the first editions, he means Editio Principes, and indeed of all old editions accordingly. I'm happy to say that in 1724, and Wanley lived to, to see the day, the Earl of Sunderland died young. And Wanley noted in his diary, Thank God he's gone. At last a man can buy an old book for a reasonable price. At a <laughs> I began with a cliché, the constant complaint that the books you want are not to be had. I end with another. The price of old books is far too high and worse going up. It is hardly surprising that human nature should change so little, even if the mechanisms by which books were made and sold have changed a great deal. There is much more to be found out about this process. I've only sketched in its outlines. And I hope that in future this hitherto neglected subject will attract its proper chronicler. And with that I end. But before I finally sign off, I cannot help taking this opportunity, such a rare opportunity, of getting a word in first about Terry. I've known Terry for rather more than 35 years, I think. When I knew him, he was an enfant terrible. I have now lived to see him become a tyrant. (laughs) 
Oscar Wilde said of the American nation that it was the only nation that had passed from savagery to decadence without the intervening stage of civilization. <laughs> Terry has passed from the enfant terrible to the tyrant without the intervening stage of humanity. <laughs> it is, uh, and if you, I remember him uh, at a time when the bibliographical establishment uh, and it was an establishment, ran from Charlottesville to Boston to London. And all these grand old panjandrums were very sure about the facts of bibliography. They could be reduced to simple arithmetic if only you knew exactly how many compositors were at work on the first folio of Shakespeare and collated your books properly and allowed for the cancels and wrote it all down. And the principles of bibliographical description seemed a Bible, a terrible Bible, a Bible which made Calvinism look an easy and free creed. <laughs> if only you obeyed the Bible, it would all be set forward in front of you. I can't tell you what a wonderful breath of fresh air it was to have an enfant terrible bursting open these dreadful old men and their iron rules. When I say terrible, perhaps the term itself needs some qualification. And cast your mind back to Cat Ballou, those of you who remember it. There's that marvelous, marvelous moment when Lee Marvin lurches out into the agonizing sunshine with a monumental hangover and finds some friend and looks at him and says, How do my eyes look? And the friend says, terrible, just terrible. And Lee Marvin says, you should see him from my side. <laughs> that was the sort of terrible quality about Terry. It, it, it shocked you into seeing things from his side. And he then embarked on the bibli bibliography newsletter, BIN, as it was known to, affectionately to its members. And those wonderful, wonderful issues of BIN the faux naïf candide, visiting the libraries and bibliographical centers of the world, just writing down what he saw, and yet you saw it with those terrible eyes, and you realized that what had seemed a rock-solid edifice was neither so rock-solid nor so respectable as he thought it was. I still treasure, along with a complete file of bin, the cancelled issue, which celebrated the pompous foundation by the pompous Library of Congress of a thing called the Center for the Book, which no doubt pacified some uh, congressmen, but has never done anybody else any good. And uh, Terry celebrated its uh, arrival with a remarkable percipience by simply copying out uh, the prospectus, which he'd found somewhere in Manhattan, of uh, a body which called itself the Center for the Dog. <laughs> and you could read this document, which was printed in extenso, phrase by phrase, substituting the word book for dog. <laughs> and it made very entertaining reading. And then, of course, uh, came the moment when Columbia, in its folly, realized, uh, uh, re realized that it was time for Terry to find a new home. And in a way, there was a kind of poetic justice that that home should be the home for so long of Freds and Bowers. And it's perhaps a happy thought that it, the earliest years of the, book, uh, of the rare book school in Charlottesville took place while Fredson was still alive to enjoy it. Because F Fredson was a big man in every sense of the word. He didn't mind being sent up. He'd send you up if you didn't send him up first. And he enjoyed... I think, a little irreverence, even if it was irreverence at his own expense. Certainly, when in the early years of, of the rare book school, when Nancy had died and Fredson was still alive and, and, and lonely without her, I think he was very, very happy to have the company of it here today. And so now we have our tyrant. And ty Napoleon once de defined tyranny as the capacity for great designs mingled with 
the rigid enforcement of petty rules. <laughs> now, I won't dwell on the rigid enforcement of petty rules, but we've all suffered under them, and concentrate instead on the great designs. What a wonderful thing it is to have a man who can single-handed erect a, a teaching system for librarians, an ungrateful and ignorant band, who have <laughs> totally failed to realize that if they are to have successes, they need teaching. Library school after library school has gone down in this country, leaving behind a wreck which, from which has emerged, phoenix-like, the rare book school here. And if you think that this is merely a school for rare book librarians, you're sadly mistaken. It's a school which all librarians ought to, to attend because it will teach them things, not merely about their old familiar books with pages and bindings and things, but the new world of electronic bookmaking, which they are probably in advance of anything that's taught in any surviving rare book school, there may, or, or any surviving library school there may be in this country. At any rate, uh, the rare book school has gone from, on from strength to strength. I'm sure it will go on from strength to strength. Terry is beginning to show signs of his age, I noticed on Monday, by imagining what would have been un unimaginable even last year, that is, a rare book school without a Bellinger. I think that there will continue to be a rare book school without a Bellinger, though where another Bellinger will come from, in fact, of course, no other Bellinger will appear, but some other possibly tyrant, perhaps not quite such a brutal tyrant, may emerge. <laughs> but that, that, that the foundation that he's, he has laid will create an edifice which will go on into a new century to enlighten and enliven a new generation of booksellers, book collectors, librarians, and all the other folk who've been brought here by him. Of that, I'm quite confident. Thank you very much. apologize for the naivete of the speaker. <laughs> this is Bookart's press lecture number 451, and if he thinks that this is a boring lecture, he clearly has heard only a relatively small number of Bookart's press lectures. I treasure the one where the speaker, uh, it was the late Rudolf Hirsch, leaned over the podium 20 minutes into the lecture and said to his audience, I think there's only about 15 minutes left. <laughs> uh, before we close, I want to mention the exhibition in this room. And this is an exercise in deconstruction because this is the catalog of the brochure advertising the exhibition in this room. Voila. The exhibition is called Intentional Miscataloging, and it shows the uh, various perversities of the Rare Book School faculty in uh, teaching aspects of paper, binding, printing, uh, and indeed anything except content in the uh, books and manuscripts in the Book Arts Press collection. And the catalog uh, mistakes itself for a hat, and if you follow the instructions written on the back of it, too can have what I started out with as your end product. Please take a look at the exhibition uh, now or uh, at your leisure. It will be up for the next several months. Uh, please come and have a drink with the speaker in the first floor staff lounge, and thank you very much for attending.